0: you're listening to an audio sermon from redemption church in olds alberta it is our prayer that through this ministry we will see lost people saved saved people matured and mature people multiplied all to the glory of god for more information about our church or to let us know how we can be praying for you visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at Well, good morning. It is a delight to be here with you this morning. As Arnie said, many of you, I, I know, I grew up here in Olds, so Olds is not unfamiliar territory for me. Uh, but it's a privilege to preach the Word of God to you this morning. I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. And as you're turning there, uh, just before before the service started, we were praying together as a group downstairs, reminded of, of this building. And at one time was heralding the gospel, and then that went away. And I'm so thankful that now the gospel is being preached here from this pulpit week in and week out. And it's a great encouragement to me to see that Christ is keeping his promises to build His church here in Olds and around the world. So I'm thankful for the ministry of Redemption Church here in Olds and pray that it continues and that even in these trying days, we would find comfort and encouragement through the word of God. And that's what I hope for you this morning, is that you would be comforted, encouraged, strengthened, maybe even refreshed in seeing the glory of Christ this morning. Matthew chapter 17, I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Would you just pray with me? Father, as we look at your word now this morning, I ask that you would open our ears and our eyes to behold the glory of Christ. And as we do so, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another even in beholding Christ this morning. So we pray that this would be a profitable time in your word and this to your glory we ask in Jesus name. Amen. Well, we've just come through the Christmas season and everywhere you look it seems like during Christmas time there's bright lights and booming voices. Bright lights, booming voices. But it's not just Christmas time. I'd argue that life in general it's full of noise, isn't it? So much noise out there, so many distractions for us. And of course, our digital age exacerbates that, right? We've got these, these devices here constantly flashing images towards us. You've got social media, all sorts of things. Lots of loud voices, lots of noise, lots of bright lights flashing, seeking to draw our attention to it. Well, put simply, I think we live in a hyper prophetic age, hyper prophetic age. And I use that word prophetic in the broadest sense of presenting a message and seeking a response from the hearers. Or for a more tasteful analogy, maybe something appropriate for the last week, it's a little bit like your, your plate was probably on Christmas Day, full of mashed potatoes and, and meat and all sorts of things, but it was oversaturated with gravy, right? I don't know if you're like me, just keep dumping the gravy on. Well, we're, we're in an oversaturated prophetic age. There's, there's so many so-called prophets out there who claim to speak authoritatively, and they beckon for a response for us. They demand even that we listen to them. As I said, social media, there's millions, there's billions of users on social media, many of whom think themselves to be prophets of a kind. Uh, they put themselves forward And they put their ideas forward as, these are the most important things that you need to believe. You need to retweet. You need to give them a response of liking or on Instagram. You give them heart or TikTok. I don't know what what all the things are out there nowadays. But they're seeking a response. There's a message out there, and they want a response. Uh, Mainstream media, same thing. They promote their own spin on what's happening, what should happen. Uh, Marketers and advertisers, they use all sorts of sights and sounds, don't they? To draw you in. You just come through the Christmas season, and and you go through the mall, and what do you see? You know, their promise, satisfaction guaranteed, or your money back, right? We're surrounded by all sorts of prophets, speaking a message, that is, beckoning for a response from the hearers. And so in this hyper-prophetic age, all these bright lights and these booming voices vying for our attention, they can very quickly overwhelm us, even making us a little bit cranky. Maybe like the Grinch, right, who looked down from his Mount Crumpet, and he was complaining about all the noise out there. And maybe that's a little bit how you're feeling. After Christmas, I just spent Christmas with family. We had eight small children in a house, and there was a lot of noise. And I don't know about you, maybe you're feeling a little bit like the Grinch this morning. But there's a lot of noise out there, and it can quickly overwhelm us. And over the last number of months, over the last 22, 23 months, whatever we are here since the beginning of the COVID ordeal, I think people have grown very cynical about listening to the experts. I don't know about you, but I have, right? People say, well, you got to listen to the experts, and you say, well, which ones? Which ones? The ones that agree with me, the ones that agree with you, somewhere in the middle, the ones that the mainstream narrative is promoting, which ones, right? And so we all kind of get very frustrated and frustrated. And now there's, there's a very great temptation for us, I think, as Christians, we're at great risk of, on the one hand, listening too intently to the so-called prophets of our age and buying their message, as it were, as gospel truth. So that's one danger is we can buy the message of all that we're hearing out there is this is gospel truth. This is the main thing that we need to be about. But there's also the other side of becoming so frustrated with the quantity of noise out there, all sorts of false predictions. I'm reminded of, uh, just in terms of false predictions, Professor Neil Ferguson. Maybe that rings, the name might ring a bell. Professor Neil Ferguson, the Imperial College of London. His colleagues now name him, they've nicknamed him Professor Lockdown. Professor Lockdown, because he's the one at the beginning of the pandemic who was basically telling everybody, you need to lock down because it's going to be you know, bodies on the streets. Well, he was claiming to be a prophet of sorts. And, of course, if we look in the Old Testament, we said, if he actually claimed to be a prophet, it wouldn't have worked out very well for him, right? He might have found himself under a pile of rubble. But we we have the, the temptation that, on the one hand, we listen too intently and buy everything. On the other hand, we can become so frustrated, even cynical, about all the noise that's out there, all the false predictions, that we move to reject all authoritative voices. We, we, we kind of set them aside as misguided or even abusive. And evangelicals are in danger of either rejecting authority or of just kind of buying in whatever comes in and not discerning. But in the Scriptures, we do not have a permission to mindlessly accept truth claims, nor does it give us the authority to just kind of rule our own lives, listen to the still, small voice within. No, rather, we need less noise and more signal. And in particular, in particular for us today, even from this passage, we as Christians need to interpret all the pundits, all the prophets, all these so-called experts of our day by filtering them through the voice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the great prophet, God's final prophet, in fact. And don't take my word for it. Look at, look at the text there. In verse 5. The voice of the Father from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, right? With whom I am well pleased, listen to him. Or as the King James Version puts it more regally, Hear ye him. That's what we are about as Christians. We are about hearing the voice of Jesus in the Word of God. Now that might sound like a bit of a Christian cliche. Maybe you're wondering... Okay, well, why did I get out of bed, make the effort to come here this morning, just to hear you tell me, listen to Jesus? Of course I want to listen to Jesus. I'm a Christian. That's what Christians do, right? We want to listen to Jesus. We want to obey him. Well, that's right. We do. But if you're anything like me, it's much easier to say than to actually do. As I said, there's all sorts of noise out there that can kind of distract us and even disorient us. There's so much distortion out there that actually listening to the voice of Jesus is far more difficult than we might think. It actually takes some discipline. And so when all this noise is around us, we're prone to get disturbed or angry or deceived, maybe even deluded by false prophets. Or it can be that we slip into patterns that we used to live before we were saved. These kind of pre-conversion patterns of thinking without the appropriate confidence before God that we as Christians ought to have. And that's really what this passage gives us, and we're going to see that. As we hear the voice of Christ, there's great confidence that the believer ought to have before the Father. And so this morning, I want to consider just three reasons why we ought to listen to the voice of Jesus above all the other prophets and pundits out there. Three reasons to listen to Jesus' voice above all other voices, even over the voice of Moses and Elijah, which might sound surprising to hear, but we'll see why that's important in just a moment. And in particular, the three reasons are that we must listen to him because of the superiority of his person, his words, and his works. So, first of all, the first reason then for us to listen to Jesus is that we must listen to him because he is the superior son. He is the superior son. Now, a bit of context there is probably helpful as we get started. If you look back in Matthew 16, verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So this is all in the context of Jesus, who had been teaching his disciples about the fact that they are going to have to bear a cross as they follow him. They're going to have to lose their lives in order to gain it. And then he says to his disciples that they're gonna, some of them are going to actually see him in glory before they die. And the some who were standing there when, that Jesus spoke to in Matthew 16, six days earlier, the some are Peter, James, and John, who we see Jesus taking up to the top of a mountain. And so right off the bat, even as we consider the voice of Jesus, as we consider his role as a prophet who speaks God's words, we're reminded that Jesus' promises come true just as any true prophet's words must. He promised that some of these weren't going to die. They were going to see Christ in glory. And sure enough, six days later, on the top of this mountain, Peter, James, and John do that. Christ keeps his word. And on this mountain, he gives these disciples a preview of the glory that he shares with the Father. Jesus only takes these three disciples. We're not given reasons why. Why just these three, and why not the rest? Perhaps it was because later on, these disciples were going to actually be with Jesus on the Mount of Gethsemane. And they were going to need to be reminded of the glory of the Son, even as they saw him suffering in agony. Whatever the case is, though, they see Jesus glorified on the top of this mountain. And even there, the fact that they are on a mountaintop, if, if we read our Bibles properly, what this ought to do is alert us Uh, the little blinking light ought to go go off in our heads and alert us to the fact that something significant is about to happen. Because mountaintops are often where God reveals himself in a special way to his people. So the Garden of Eden, you go back to the very beginning. The Garden of Eden, often viewed as being situated on a hill. The rivers flowing down from it. And it's here on this mountain that God instructed who? Adam and Eve, right? The first people. His image bearers, he instructed them how they were to live in right relationship to him and to one another as his image bearers. And then we work our way through the Bible and we come to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, of course, most of you know what happens there. God comes, he speaks to Moses, he gives the law, this covenant document, and he speaks to him, he reveals himself as the God of Israel. And Jesus, if you go back just a few pages in Matthew's gospel to Matthew 5, You'll see that Jesus goes onto a mountain. He preaches the famous Sermon on the Mount. Where he says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And now, here we have another mountaintop experience where God is revealing his unique glory in the face of Jesus Christ, the Son. That's what's happening here. What he's doing is he's actually pulling back the veil in order to show us the uniqueness of Jesus compared to all other prophets prior to him. And what they witness is marvelous. So what they witness is Jesus transfigured. You see that, look in verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. The word transfigured is literally metamorphosized. You remember back to your biology class, right? What happens to the caterpillar? Goes into the cocoon, metamorphosizes into a butterfly. It's It's a transformation, a glorious transformation. And he was transfigured before them, verse two. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, as I talk about the sun being the, the veil being pulled back, we need to be very careful here because there's all sorts of Christological heresies that we can get into. That's why we got to be very precise when we're talking about who Jesus is and what's exactly happening here. Jesus is not changing. His essential nature is not changing. You remember, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's a good truth to have and carry with you into 2022. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever because he is the eternal Son. He shares in the glory of the Father from all eternity and through all eternity. He never changes. So it's not the essential nature, his divinity, that is transforming, but rather, it is the glory of the divine Son that's being unveiled Because when Jesus became a man, he veiled his glory with humanity. That's what's happening. As we come through Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation. The second person of the Trinity was veiled in the sense of his glory. He didn't stop being God. He didn't stop exercising his divine attributes. But he did veil them from sight during his state of humiliation as a man. But on this mountain, these three disciples, they get a preview of the glory that the Son shares with the Father from eternity, and that the Son, according to his humanity, is going to share and have for all eternity. This was no hallucination. It wasn't just something that these these guys had kind of concocted in their own mind. This was an actual event that they were witnessing. They witnessed it with their own eyes. Peter, in his second letter... In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. That even just, as we think of myths, just as a bit of an aside, we've got conversion therapy ban that's going to become law next week. Well, right in the preamble, it talks about basically what you and I believe as being myth. Peter's saying, well, we, didn't, we don't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They saw it with their eyes. And in seeing it, they were transformed. And this majesty here is described in Matthew 17 as being radiant with glory, literally shining as the brightness of the sun. It's something that it can't be contained. And of course, as we think back on Jesus' birth and all the events surrounding it, you'll remember there was often... Bright lights and booming voices, wasn't there? Jesus, when he is born, there's a bright star that star that's shining in the heavens that's guiding the magi to Jesus. Uh, when the angels announce the birth of the Messiah, what happens? It says that the glory of the Lord shone around them as they speak to the shepherds. And now here, these three disciples are seeing the glory of the sun, literally radiating. Before them. And though there are three men, we see Jesus and Elijah and Moses with them. Only Jesus here is described in this unique way. As shining with the brilliance of divine majesty as no man has ever before. Again, communicating to us that Jesus is utterly unique. You see, when Moses... You say to me, well, well, don't you... Wasn't it back in the Old Testament that Moses actually, when he went on top of the mountain... He came down and his face was shining and he had to put a veil over it. Well, yeah, but that's the point. He put a veil over it and it hid the glory. The veil could hide the shining of Moses' face. But we see here with Christ, nothing can contain his glory, not even his clothes. The entirety of his being radiates with the glory of God. Nothing could conceal it, reminding us that there is no darkness in him because there is no sin in him. Uh, he is pure glory, divine goodness, because he is the Son of God from on high. He is very God a very God. There's a uniqueness to his glory, because he doesn't just radiate because he's been in the presence of God. He is God. That's why he's shining as he is. That's what they're seeing. He's the Son in his glory reminding us even as the fact that he is the true light, as Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. And he's come into a dark world, hasn't he? A dark world, dark in sin, living under the shadow of death. And yet Jesus comes to give light to those in darkness. Now, just, just think for yourself, you've got to kind of imagine a little bit. You put yourself in, in this situation. If you were Peter or James or John, and you had just witnessed now Jesus transfigured and you're seeing the Son in his glory, this unique glory, how would you respond? How would you respond? Well, I'd submit to you that we'd probably respond in much the same way as Peter. At least some of us were. Some of us who, who like to speak before we think, right? Like Peter. And, and maybe we'd, we'd respond like Peter, especially if we had just heard the words that Peter heard in Matthew 16. You remember? Jesus told them about the cross that they were going to bear. you got to take up your cross and follow me, not a cushion. It's a cross you're going to bear. And you're going to lose your life. And now, seeing this glory and, and witnessing all this goodness before him, what Peter decides to do, his response is, let's start a building campaign. All right? He's kind of like a good Baptist. When you see something, it's like, okay, let's start a building campaign. So he says, in verse 4, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now we have to ask ourselves, so why is Peter deciding that building a tent would be a good idea? Well, again, it doesn't specifically tell us why he does this. But in Luke's gospel, the the parallel passage to this in Luke 9, He tells us that Peter actually speaks and makes this plan, this proposal, without knowing what he's saying. He's kind of speaking in ignorance. He's he's really zealous. He's got this plan that he thinks, this would be a good idea. But he's actually not knowing what he's saying. And we know that Peter is actually wrong-headed in his response because he's actually interrupted by God himself. He's interrupted by God himself. Look there at verse 5 with me he was still speaking when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him i mean it is it is the kindness of the lord that he often interrupts us isn't it it's the kindness of the lord that he interrupts us when our zeal is without knowledge and we're all like that at times. Our zeal is not in accordance with knowledge. We're very passionate. We think this would be a great idea. Let's do it. You know, let's, let's build a tent. Let's set up camp here for a while. Uh, we can avoid the cross of suffering. Let's just go straight to glory. That seems like a good idea, right? Well, the Lord graciously interrupts Peter here. Maybe it was because Peter was wanting to avoid the cross of suffering. I think there's a fact that Peter was flattening the distinctions between Jesus and Moses and Elijah, putting them kind of all on the same level. You know, I'll build a tent for you, Jesus, alongside Moses and Elijah. It's like, no, no, no. I'm not like Moses and Elijah. Godly men as they were, I'm the son. The unique son. I'm the final prophet. Don't put me on the level of everybody else. Either way, I think we can identify with Peter here. I certainly can. <laughs> I speak often before I think. can be very zealous about things. We can all be very zealous about a certain course of action. We think, yeah, this would be the right thing to do. This would be right in our own eyes. But then we miss the bigger picture of what God intends to do, even through suffering. God intends to do you good and to transform you from one degree of glory to another through your sufferings. We might think that the cross of suffering is not the way, but it's actually the way to glory. And so it is, I hope, that as you're listening to the voice of God, as you read the Word of God, as you study the Scriptures, that you are often interrupted by the Lord, like Peter. You have these plans, you have these desires of your heart that you want, but it's good to be interrupted You need to be interrupted by the Lord. Even as Peter was, as he was still speaking, you know, drawing up these plans. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You listen to him. You listen to him. See, if your desires and your plans never get interrupted by the Lord, at best it means that you're very zealous without knowledge. At worst it means you think that you know better than God. And therefore, there's a need to repent and to to humble yourself before the Word and to let the Word shape your desires and let the Word shape your plans, even for this coming year. Lots of people this time of the year, they're getting their Bible reading plans figured out. Hopefully, you're kind of working on that, figuring out what kind of plan you might want to start out for the year. Maybe add two prayer requests as you read the Word each day. First of all, ask the Lord, show me the glory of your Son in the pages of Scripture. We need to read Scripture with Christian eyes. But secondly, ask the Lord to actually interrupt you, to interrupt your plans, your desires, by means of His Word. That would be a good prayer, and that's a prayer that the Lord would love to answer. See, God the Father, so he interrupts Peter here with a message that clarifies Jesus is the superior son, loved by him, delighted in by him. Uh, These words that we see in verse 5, they're actually the exact words that Jesus, or that the Father speaks from heaven at Jesus' baptism. And you can read about that back in Matthew chapter 3. As Jesus was baptized, these same words are spoken to him. And so I think it's actually likely, not only that The Father is speaking these words for the disciples to hear and to sort of reorient and recalibrate their understanding of who Jesus is, but it's also for the Son of God himself, Jesus, the God-man, to hear that his Father loves him and delights in him. Jesus is about to go to the cross here. He's setting his face towards Jerusalem, He's, he's headed for the cross, and so Jesus himself needed to hear and take comfort in the fact that his Father in heaven loves him and delights in him because of his obedience. It's actually quite interesting. You see the parallel between Jesus at his baptism, what happens right after is he goes into the wilderness where he's tempted. He endures the agony of the wilderness and these temptations. But the greatest temptation is yet ahead of him. is the turn from the cross. And so the Father reminds the Son once again... Of his love, such words of love would strengthen Jesus' human resolve to endure the agony of the cross, to obey to the point of death, even death on a cross. And even as we recognize we are called to be imitators of God, I see fathers out here with young children, even fathers of old children. One of the greatest ways that you can help your children bear the cross, bear the trials that they're about to face is to remind them that you love them. Actually, with your words, to to speak and remind them that you love them. And if they're believers in Jesus Christ, to remind them, most importantly, that their Father in Heaven loves them and delights in them as much as He delights in His own Son. It's an amazing reality for the Christian. It's something that would then help, even through the trials, the Father here, of course, is pleased with the Son because He is the eternal Son. He shares with the same, the glory of the Father. But the Father is also well pleased in His Son, as I said, because he is obedient. He's the obedient Son. Obedient to the point of death. It's an amazing thing. Part of the glory of Jesus is not just seen in His brilliance, in His, in his glory as the Son, but in the fact that as a man, He obeyed. He obeyed to the point of death even on a cross. See, Jesus, it says, he was transfigured. It's actually something that happened to him. You think, well, Jesus is the one exalting himself. No, actually, Jesus isn't. Never in his earthly life does Jesus exalt himself. He waits patiently for the Father to glorify him. And so it ought to be with all of us. Are you, as the Son, waiting patiently And trusting the Lord's timing to exalt you? Or are you seeking, like many people around us, like the world around us, you know, just to seize glory and to exalt ourselves? That's not the trajectory of the Son. It ought not to be the trajectory of the Christian. So how, then, should we respond to this beloved Son? The Father says, hear ye Him. See, that's what prophets do. They they call for a response. There's, There's a response, then, that is called for from us. Hear ye him. Listen to him. Pay attention. Open your ears. Incline them to his words. You see, Jesus is a superior son, but he ministers as a prophet. In fact, these very words, the words, listen to him, draw us back, all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy verse 18, where Moses prophesied... That the Lord himself would raise up a prophet like himself. He says in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That's Moses. Moses is saying somebody else is coming after me. The Lord's going to raise up a prophet like me. And you're going to listen to him. He's going to have the final word. You need to listen to him. And so Jesus, in this sense, he came as the, he is the son, but he also came to be a prophet like Moses and Elijah. And what do prophets do? Well, they speak God's words, and they perform miracles. They perform miraculous works to attest to the truthfulness of their message. That's what Moses and Elijah did. They spoke God's words, and they performed all sorts of miracles to attest to the trustworthiness of their message. And like that, Jesus does the same things. But, but Jesus is superior because his works and his words surpass Moses and Elijah's. And so it is, not only that we must listen to Jesus because he's a superior son, but we must listen to him because his words are superior to all others. Now, we've got to be careful here. Again, you can get to all sorts of errors, so nuance is important. Because when I say that Jesus actually preaches a better word, a better message than even Moses and Elijah, I don't mean that he preaches it in the sense of being more true. See, Moses' words, the law, and Elijah's words, all the prophets, the entire Old Testament, they are true. They are breathed out by God. And we ought to believe them. They're profitable, Paul says. They're true. We need to listen to them. These were two of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. And so Jesus here is not, or the Father here, is not promoting any kind of red-letter Christianity. Maybe you've heard about that. Kind of like, well, let's just cut out all the parts of Scripture that don't have red letters. Because the red letters are somehow more important than all the other ones. No, no, no. All of Scripture is inspired by God. All of Scripture points to and is about Jesus. And Jesus himself affirms the legitimacy of, of both the apostolic word that comes after him, that is the rest of the New Testament, as well as the prophets who came before him. So Jesus affirms the legitimacy of the entire scriptures. If we're going to be listening to Jesus, that means we got to listen to the entire Bible. And you see that. Look in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now, what's interesting here is that in this prohibition for them not to speak is actually a charge to these particular men, these disciples, these apostles, to speak only after the resurrection. And that's exactly what we have in the New Testament, is this eyewitness testimony to Jesus, his life and his ministry and his words, explaining them to us and making application to the church. The writings of the New Testament are the writings of eyewitnesses. And Jesus says, yeah, you guys are going to go be my witnesses. You're going to speak about me. So again, listening to Jesus means listening to the apostles. That's why Jesus says in Luke 10, the one who hears you, he's speaking of the apostles here, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. So, if you reject the apostles, you're actually rejecting Jesus. You're not listening to him. But Jesus also affirms the truthfulness of the Old Testament. Because that pointed towards him. That's why he says, if you look at verse 10 with me, And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So the disciples come here, and they're wondering, what's all going on here? Right? We had these prophecies, they're probably thinking back to Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, this prophecy about Elijah and the day of the Lord and the restoration of all things, the fulfillment of God's promises in Malachi 4 5, which says, Behold... I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's probably what's ringing in the disciples' ears as they're seeing all these things. And Jesus turns to them and says, Yes, that's true. That's true. What Malachi prophesied hundreds of years before about Elijah coming and this restoration of the day of the Lord, it's, it's all true. You need to believe it. Yes, these prophets, they speak What is true? But he says to his disciples that the prophecies, and in this case, the one about Elijah and the restoration, they often get fulfilled in very surprising ways. In this case, the fact that John the Baptist is Elijah himself, this prophet, this forerunner, and that there's even a gap between Elijah's prophet-like ministry and the restoration of all things, it's surprising. But Jesus affirms the legitimacy of the entirety of scriptures in that they point to him. And, of course, Jesus' own words and works are surprising. Just listen to what he says. Look back with me there at verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So they've heard this voice from heaven, and they've been knocked to the ground. It's almost like this cloud overshadowing them reminds us of the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. They're in the very presence of glory, the very presence of God himself. And they hear his voice, and they're knocked low. They're filled with fear. They're terrified. When was the last time that you were knocked low and humbled by the word? Again, the Lord not all the... The Lord not only interrupts us, he brings us low, he humbles us by his word. This is indeed a proper proper posture for the Christian. The Christian is one to be reverent before God, reverent in his presence, bowing with a posture of worship in submission to the word, not standing over it in judgment. That's not the posture of the Christian. The posture of the Christian is that we bow and we tremble before the word. That's the kind of people that the Lord looks to. And yet, and yet, here's the amazing paradox of the Christian faith. Is that the Christian should simultaneously live with two postures. We ought to bow before the Lord in humble submission to his word. And we ought to stand. We ought to stand without fear. That's the paradox of the Christian faith. That's the message that Christ announces. The message that he preached as the greater prophet than Moses and Elijah. You know, it's an amazing thing as you look through the scriptures. And in particular, in a place like 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that the Apostle Paul can speak of Moses' ministry as a ministry of death. You know that? That's actually how Paul summarizes the ministry of Moses and the law. It's a ministry of death. Oh yes, Moses' words were good words. They were true words because they're God's words. Yes. But they didn't give life. Why? Because people were held captive in sin. They needed new hearts. The law only ends up condemning everyone under sin. And Elijah and the prophets said the same thing. They pointed forward to a day when God would give his people ears to hear and hearts to respond to the truth. For thousands of years, The prophets of God, they emphasized this separation between God and sinful man. The one true and living God who is three times holy and sinful man. This massive separation, the temple, all the sacrifices, everything emphasized separation, distance. The prophets, they announced the dilemma. They leave us with these unanswered questions. How can a holy God dwell in the presence of sinful people and vice versa? That's what you get in your Old Testament. Remember Uzzah? Remember Uzzah? The guy that, as they were bringing the ark back, the ark starts, they're bringing it back on this cart, and the ark starts to topple, and and Uzzah reaches out to stabilize the ark. Again, he thinks that he's doing something good and noble, but what happens is he's struck dead instantly because no one dare touch. The ark. No one dare get close to God in that way, apart from a mediator. But now look at this. Jesus, the Son, the one who was just transfigured, shown as very God of very God, the true God, Jesus himself comes to his disciples who are terrified in the presence of God. And what does he do? He touches them. He touches them. Jesus came, verse 7, and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. Do they die instantly? No. They stand. They stand. What a shock that must have been for these men to have just witnessed the Son in glory. They knew the message of Moses and Elijah, these good words in the Old Testament. And now they hear and they feel God himself touching them. And they're not consumed in judgment. But of course, it's not surprising if you've listened to Jesus before, if you've seen the works that he's done. You'll know that his ministry was one where he would often lay a gentle hand upon those who were laid low with diseases and demons. Sinners and tax collectors. He would tell the lame to stand up. And one of his favorite phrases is to tell his followers, do not be afraid. That is the message of the gospel. So how appropriate then, as they lift up their eyes, verse 8, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Why? Because he's the only one that can make sinners stand in the presence of God and not be consumed. That's what Jesus came to reveal. That's the message that he came to make clear. This is how you can stand without fear. See, Jesus is the final prophet who announces to the world by his words and his works how God will keep his promises to save his people and to dwell among them, to cleanse them from their sins, and to make them stand in his presence without fear. See, Jesus speaks this gospel to his people. He speaks that to you right now, even this morning, and would tell you as a Christian to rise and not be afraid. But the basis upon which he does that is because his works are superior. And that's the final reason why we ought to listen to Jesus. Because he's the superior son, because his words are superior, but it's all based upon the work of That he does. See, Peter certainly made a mistake of flattening the distinctions between Moses and Elijah and Jesus. His words are better because they call us to stand in God's presence without fear of condemnation. And the reason he can say this is precisely because he actually accomplished a work, the work that he was sent to do. See, like all true prophets, Jesus predicts his future perfectly and he performs miracles that attest to the truthfulness of his message. Moses and Elijah, they performed all sorts of great works. Moses led the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, all sorts of miracles. Elijah, he prayed, he called down fire from heaven. But all of those miracles, all of those works, they get eclipsed by the work of the Son who is raised from the dead. Again, verse 9, Jesus says, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples probably thinking, die? Aren't you the Messiah? The one who was promised? Aren't you going to bring in your kingdom and all its glory? We just saw you glorified. Why can't you skip over the cross and get to glory? We didn't see anything about the suffering of the Son of Man in Daniel's prophecy as he talks about the Son of Man coming on the clouds. We didn't see anything about suffering. die. What's all this talk about dying and rising from the dead? I mean, the disciples would have been radically confused. But, like a true prophet, Jesus himself will be rejected, and he will be killed by the people who hate his voice and who don't recognize him as the Son of Man. That's what he says, verse 12, But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so also, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Moses and Elijah, yeah, they suffered. They suffered for the truth that they spoke. They suffered at the hands of wicked men, but Jesus' suffering and his death as a prophet is a different kind of death altogether. Because Moses and Elijah, they couldn't die to save sinners. Sinners. They were themselves sinners who needed Christ to die on their behalf. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He doesn't deviate from the cross. He doesn't skip straight to glory. He knows that the cross leads to the crown. And on the cross is where Jesus himself dies in the place of sinners. He takes the judgment of God that they deserve upon himself. And he makes payment for sins, even satisfying the wrath of God so that sinners can stand in the very presence of God and not be consumed. And unlike Moses and Elijah and every other prophet before who spoke truth maybe, but they died, Jesus rose from the dead. Even as he predicted, again, Jesus' words come true. If he wouldn't have been raised from the dead, you ought not to believe him. If he's not raised from the dead, what you can do is you can take Jesus and you can send him alongside all the other so-called prophets out there. You can put him alongside Joseph Smith and Muhammad and all the others as, oh, well, they got some good insights for living, but the fact that he is raised from the dead means every other voice falls underneath it. You've got to listen to him because he's the son who's risen from the dead. That's the work that testifies to his words. That his words are true. So the question is then, have you listened? Have you listened to the Son of God? I'm I'm thinking that there's probably some here today who maybe think that you have a right to stand in the presence of God without fear because of your own merits. Uh, because of your cleverness, your intuition, because, well, I'm not as bad as fill-in-the-blank. You need to repent of that entitlement mentality and recognize that the only one who can make you stand is the Lord Jesus Christ, and you need to listen to him in his summons to turn from your sins and to trust in him alone. That's what he calls his people to do. And brothers and sisters, fellow Christians here today, are you resting in the words, these gospel words, rise and do not be afraid? Christians so easily get distracted. The assurance of salvation that we ought to have can very quickly be taken away from us because, well, we, get, we think that the Lord only loves us because of what we do. We can actually fall back into these kind of old patterns of Thinking. But no, no, no. We need to hear the voice of the Son of God who says, rise and do not be afraid. You can stand. Stand without fear. Stand without fear of death. Stand without fear of judgment. Stand objectively, right now, today, knowing that your sins are forgiven. They're washed away because of Christ. See, towards the end of the Apostle John's life, the one who is here with Jesus. He is exiled for his witness to Jesus Christ. And he sees this vision once again of the Son of Man in glory. And we read this in Revelation 1.17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But notice this. He laid his right hand on me. Saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. See, if you listen to Jesus in this hyper prophetic age, all these voices around you, but if you'll listen to Him and you'll trust in Him and you obey His word, you can stand before Him without fear today, regardless of all the voices that you hear around you. You can stand without the fear of death, without the fear of judgment. This is the good news Jesus came to announce. See, Peter, as we go back to Peter, Peter was mistaken in his proposal to build tents, maybe avoiding the cross of suffering, or equating Jesus with Moses and Elijah, whatever his reasons were. He was was wrong, but truer words could not have been spoken than when he said in response to seeing the Son glorified. In verse 4, Lord, it is good that we are here. It is good that we are here. See, Christian, now is the era of the ear. We live by faith, not by sight. We trust the words, the entirety of the scriptures. Our experience will be really the reverse of Peter and James and John's here on the Mount of Transfiguration. Because what they did is they first saw Jesus glorified, and then they heard the summons to listen. Well, today, you are hearing the summons from the word of God, to listen to the voice of the Son. And if you will, you will look upon him in glory. And the scriptures say, you will be made like him. And you will with Peter, and James, and John, and all the saints who have listened to the voice of the Son, say, it is good. It is good that we are here in the presence of Christ. That's the hope of the believer who listens to the voice of the Son. And even as we now come to communion, it's an opportunity for us once again to be reminded of the basis upon which we do stand. That is, the broken body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has graciously given us these reminders that we might stand before him with the assurance, knowing that our sins are forgiven so even now, we can listen to the voice of Jesus, even as we take communion together. Let me pray as the worship team comes up. Father, we thank you for your word, which is so clear. In all the noise and distraction that's out there, we ask, Lord, that you would, you would help us to be attentive to it, to believe it and to do it, even to be those who would build our lives upon the sure foundation of your words. We thank you that you have given us this opportunity to gather together. I pray that if there, are there, if there are those here today who do not know Christ, who have never listened to the voice of the Son, that they would repent and that they would turn to him and find life and even hear the assurance of pardon, that they can stand before you without fear. And that all of us today going from here would, would stand without fear, knowing that our sins have been forgiven in Christ and only in him the one who has been raised from the dead. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.